Dispatch Publishing presents Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Naqui. In 1995, in her 56th year, Sister had something to say. Looking back, the years with the MC felt both an eternity and an instant. Shanti changed along with New India. Communist rebellion, wars with Pakistan and China, religious riots, a state of emergency, political assassinations, open markets. What would come next? Sister Shanti, one of the MC's earliest sisters, had aged as the community flourished. She had been away from home since the beginning, served as mistress for postulants, led catechismal classes in Italy, learned nursing skills, taught street children, even spent a few years in Nepal, and now worked in a home for the dying in Mumbai. If this sounds like part of a recruitment brochure, it's not. There was discipline to meet out. Serious infighting among overburdened sisters to moderate. Searching for the rare runaway postulant. Even occasional physical abuse masked as penance by over-harsh superiors. The truth of any institution is different from its public face. It is the same with individuals. So why should the MCs, comprised of people, be any different? The weight of this began to accrue. During the wide open hours of prayer and sleepless nights, she pondered over it. Long periods of disengagement came. Ever on the cusp of more senior leadership, internal and external doubts abounded, and her superiors took note. She had grown tired of the plainest interpretations of the starkest commandments felt suffocated by the structures that governed her life, confused by many of the forms the MC's theology of sacrifice could take. To feel a spark flash inside her soul was a wonder, and she feared the fire was truly dead. But hope that things might change and fear of the great unknown kept her in place. Of course, she had told no one of these struggles, and yet everyone knew. Her single sigh could reveal decades' worth of discontent. This day was a special opportunity, for Mother Teresa was visiting Mumbai, called Bombay in those days. Mother's presence was not uncommon. She lived in Kolkata, called Calcutta in those days, and travelled often to the other MC homes in India and around the world. The stamina she demonstrated at 85 years of age was remarkable and mother was venerated even then, not officially, of course. The mystique of a living saint surrounded her, especially among the members of the MC community she birthed. Private audiences with mother were also not uncommon and sister had been worrying over what she would say for weeks. When it was her turn... She entered the small room, darkening in the late afternoon, and sat across from Mother on a small stool. Mother was hunched and looking her age. 
Sister tried to smile and joke a bit with the playful mother. They were old friends, and she was still unsure if she could unload on her burdens in this meeting. Something is the matter, mother finally said definitively. She saw right through sister's veneer. Sister took a whole minute to speak. I am not who I want to be, she said. Speak louder, sister. I have regrets. Mother changed in an instant. You are who God wants you to be. That is more important. Sister wondered if the conversation was over before it started. She tried again, terrified at what her words might bring. I love to love, Sister offered. I feel like myself when serving. But I struggle, Mother. I struggle terribly. I wonder what it means for me if I might. You are here. You have taken vows. There can be no question you are meant to be here. Mother sighed. You've known this since your aspirancy, sister. Obedience is simple. Keep the rule. The rule will keep you. Obey the bell. Confess. Pray the rosary. Return to the basics and quiet your troubled mind. God will show you. Mother sat up straight. It is not so complicated. Sister retreated into herself as more admonitions were supplied. They passed the remaining time in conversation, but Mother was tired and retreated into a mode that left her relying on practice phrases Sister had heard, had repeated herself over the years. Mother suddenly sat upright and looked deep into Sister's eyes, took her wrist. You are a beautiful creation, sister. I am giving saints to Mother Church, and you are one of them. Don't forget that. You may feel you are so far away from him now, but you are closer to holiness than you know. Don't be deceived. Sister Shanti nodded slowly, her eyes drawn to her toes. Please send in Sister Naomi now, Mother asked. She rose to follow Mother's instruction. Oh, Mother exclaimed, I nearly forgot. You're going to Delhi, Mother said. Sister Bernice is ill. You will head the apostolate for street children. Sister was stunned. I will be a superior until Sister Bernice is better? Mother darkened. Barring a miracle which we will pray for, she is not expected to become better. Sister stepped into the hall and signaled to the waiting sister Naomi. As she descended the stairs, she braced herself against a wall, unsure of her feelings. On one hand, Mother had not supplied a word that spoke to her confusion and doubts. On the other, she wondered if a return to Delhi might restore her to something she had been missing a great many years. The driver presses play on his CD player, adjusts his hanging Hamza charm. Sitar flourishes sweep through our auto. Not a problem. We can speak more freely, Francis. You never know when these drivers, quick to feign disinterest, gobble up their passengers every word in search of exploitable opportunity. Indeed, 
what I am about to say may strike a scandalous note. Mother Teresa was no saint. Before you gnash your teeth and throw yourself out of a moving vehicle, he may out. What seems a slight is actually a compliment. Yes, I know what canonization requires. A person living a heroic and virtuous life of faith. Posthumous miracles, usually inexplicable healings through the intercession of the holy person. Note my capitalization of the word. I'm not so interested in saints as I am in saints. A saint is impenetrable, uncomplicated, singular. A saint embraces weakness and transparency. A saint is rarefied, distant, unattainable. A saint is of the same flesh and blood as you and I. I have no interest in saints. Their narratives are too often exaggerated myth, as boring and mystifying to me as Western superheroes. I want my saints to be lesser creatures. In a word, human beings. I believe Mother was that kind of saint. We all know Mother has her detractors. We MCs have prayed for them. We are not unassailable, nor was Mother. Don't tell my superiors I'm saying this. But that's precisely where my affection for the woman has grown. Think of this. For decades, Mother was a rather obscure nun with the sisters of Loreto in India. She taught in a convent school and heeded a call within the call to love God as deeply as her frailties would allow and pursue a vision to love the least of these. At the age of 46, after ten years of prayer and rejection of the idea by her spiritual leaders, she was able to build this new religious community and change the world. Now, there is much that can be made of her spiritual darkness. Sisters' letters to spiritual advisors revealed a woman who felt alienated from the love of Jesus for years. A dark night of the soul that stretched to decades. Her antagonists paint her as a thoroughly depressed and disbelieving old woman. Her proponents say her spiritual desolation over these years was a sign of her remarkable faith and perseverance that she still clung to God, even though she felt utterly abandoned. I cannot know the mind of God, but I live Mother's legacy. I am of a different generation of MC that knew Mother only after her death. Sister was, in fact, the first MC that I knew and my real introduction to the faith. You can imagine the laughter when, during aspirancy, I asked who the shriveled old woman was with her face and statues all over MC homes. I have grown a great affection for Mother since coming to the MCs because she was frail and fallible and chose to love. Not the kind of saint the world wants, but certainly the kind it needs. I make you nervous, Francis. How can I tell? I can read you as a book. Your jerking knee, a twitchiness in your otherwise serene self, furtive glancing at the street markets and traffic as night descends and we breathe auto-exhaust and bump, bump, bump along. What's that? You wonder at our destination? I see. A change of subject.
You could ask those two in the rickshaw in front of us. That's right. We've been following Meeta and Adiba this entire time. I'll bring you up to speed. Their ride to Ram's apartment has been quiet, though Adiba's stare is wearing. Finally, she speaks. I did the needful with Singh, Meeta says. Only that. The rickshaw hits another pothole and bounces. The afternoon's grease-laden pakoras Meeta ate nearly exit her stomach. She frowns. She did not give Constable Singh anything not given to a hundred other men before. What gives discomfort beyond her current dyspepsia is the vague notion, renewed occasionally, that she gives nothing in the performance of such indecent acts, but that something is taken from her. Adiba still stares. She massages her stomach, prompting a small burp. Arrived! barks the rickshaw driver. She pulls a vinyl curtain aside. Through the light drizzle, she sees a decrepit building. Confusion. The trip wasn't nearly as long as she expected. There are no glass shopping malls, no high-rises, no brightly lit signs. Only decomposing veggies for sale by a teenage girl, a trio of very bored dogs and a row of run-down apartment buildings known as Chols. This is Gorgaon? She puts the slip of paper Constable Singh had written on before the driver's nose. Gorgayan, what are you talking about? This is Sunrise Estates, Jahangirpuri, just like the paper says. She looks at it again, but the words still fail to make sense. But we need Gurgayon, she says. There must be another Sunrise Estates, but bin Gurgayon. Take us there. The driver takes a long, final puff on his bidi before casting the butt into the street. Gurgayon, 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 are you stupid now? Just get out and pay me. I pay you nothing if you... Adiba pushes her out. She reaches into her purse and hands over the agreed-upon price. Sister fucker! Ah, her usual eloquence on display as their transport putters off. Alight, Francis. Pay our own driver, will you? I haven't a rupee to my name. Meeta lifts a scarf to shield her hair from the damp and she runs for shelter under the covered walkway. This is surely a mistake, she thinks. Was Constable Singh wrong? Did he make something up? Maybe a different Ram lived here. She sighs. Her regretful afternoon meal and paying for the ride had used half of the rupees Gina advanced her. The return trip would eat up most of the rest. Adiba looks at her with expectation. She squints at the mostly nonsensical writing on the paper, spins it around. 4B, it reads. Numbers and letters, she knows at least. Let's climb, she says to Adiba. Let's climb. I say to you. The tenants in the building's darkened hallways track the pair as they stumble around. Meeta summons salutations but is unable to meet their hounding eyes. Sounds blare from behind poorly hung doors, a sizzling stove, a baby crying, a man singing, TV jingles. She rounds a corner and all but slips in a standing puddle. A pair of men loiter in the stairwell, chewing pan and expectorating red goop on the floor. 
They see her and catcall, but lay off when Adiba appears. For once, she is grateful for the hovering bloated fellow. The fourth level, once reached, is unlike the others. Quiet, more deserted. Whole apartment units are abandoned, their doors actually missing. The empty rooms tell stories of their former tenants. Adiba waits in the stairwell as Meeta searches for some sign of apartment B. Of the doors that remain, they have pink spray-painted letters. Finding her door, she knocks. No answer. Shouting breaks out downstairs, a man and a woman caught up in a terrible row. Her skin prickles. She swallows. Her throat is a furnace. Anyone there? With no response, she tries the door handle. Surprisingly, it is open. An odour assails her. Something rots. There is no window, only a small vent, and no visible light switch. Adiba's lifted mobile casts a blue glow sufficient to make out the shape of the two-room apartment and a wall-mounted fluorescent bulb. She tugs its hanging chain and gasps. Utter disarray. She steps in further. This is no mere bachelor's untidiness, though there are signs of that. Insect carcasses galore, a grimy film on the walls, dust in layered strata. Movie posters, Shole and Lagan, moulder in the damp. Phone charges left plugged into the sole wall outlet. What finally grabs her attention are the drawers and their contents spilled over two sleeping mats. And then, dark marks abound, flecking the cracked concrete floor, shirts, pirated DVDs, everything. On closer inspection, possibly blood. Adiba sits on a crate, folds his hands in his lap and falls into a nap. Mita rifles through the room's detritus. Fear gives way to disgust. Oil coats everything surrounding an electric hot plate. A pair of dishes appear encrusted with days-old potato curry. She cannot tell which clothes are clean and which are dirty. She lifts one of the loosely hanging posters. Her hand leaps to her mouth. A hollow in the wall, chipped away, but nothing of value is there. Just a schoolchild's exercise book rolled, scroll-like. She opens it. Pen drawn lines. Someone, Ram, his roommate, had carefully partitioned the pages into stacks of boxes. Lots of notations, English mostly, with Hindi script popping up here and there in a different coloured ink. Each box is numbered in sequence, never rising higher than 31. Tucked into the book's centrefold are additional papers. She opens one note, handwritten, all in a different hand than the writing in the exercise book. Unmistakable pen-drawn hearts near this signature are the only things that stand out. Adiba could at least read Hindi, but she hides the book and notes in her bag. She doesn't want to share them, not just yet. What could have happened here? Could the killer, wounded at the station, have actually rushed here afterwards in search of something? It would explain the blood, also the disarray. Possible, probable, likely.
She continues turning over the rest of the apartment. There won't be a chance to return. She rifles through a cardboard box, mostly clothes, but at the bottom are five pairs of golden earrings. They look familiar. In fact, she wears a similar set right now. Ram gave them to her the third time he had visited her, and the first he arranged to pass the night with her in the outside world under Adiba's supervision. He didn't tell Meeta the price, but she knew it was steep. The gesture made her proud. She thought they would go somewhere conspicuous where he could show her off, and she was right. They went to Connaught Place, Delhi's esteemable shopping district, comprised of gleaming whitewashed lines of stores with enough columns to connote stability and high class, even though it was overrun with touts selling carved knickknacks and Indian kitsch. They ate at Nando's Chicken and had a fee suitable for a raja. They shared an ice cream cone. He bought her one of those mass-produced stuffed animals, a white bear with an embroidered red heart. They sat for a time on a bench purpose-built for young couples to oh and ah, told her all about life working in the call centre, about employee trysts, Americans and their dumb questions, nights out drinking with friends and how she was prettier than all their girlfriends. It was at that moment as Ram natted away that a change occurred. Though she lacked language to describe what Ram offered her, it was a taste of respectability. No one knew her here. No pimps joked at her expense, nor did shop owners act as if she did not exist. It was intoxicating. New hope sprang out of her like lines of rope and began to tie her to this image of Ram. Understand, other such dates with customers were purely opportunistic. A bit of show, a good meal, leading a man on to extract a few more rupees to buy some sweets or makeup down the road. Part of the job was all Ram had been until now. But as they strolled under those lights, breathing in Delhi's heavy air, she felt new freedom. She looked at Ram's eyes as often as she could. They were filled with immense pride. She wondered if her heart was turning towards Ram. Sex came later that night, but she knew it wasn't of primary importance to Ram. He wanted something deeper. He wanted love. He told her as much. She received professions of love all the time, literally, and brushed them off until customers became so annoying she had to have Adiba scare them off. When Ram told her he was in love most certain, she accepted the words as she always did. But he passed her a gift, left behind by his departed mother, he told her. Golden earrings. Meeta accepted them. Love most certain, indeed. And so you see the difficulty of what lies at the bottom of that cardboard box in a dirty chole in a slummy corner of Delhi. Just two days after his death, the gleaming image of wealth and prosperity Ram put across has lost its luster. She covers up the earrings, tells herself to forget she even found them. She forces her eyes closed, breathes deeply. He is dead. That is what matters. He loved her. That is what matters. They were on the cusp of new lives.
that is what matters. She stuffs the doubt and mistrust away as best she can. All of this is explainable and she will find those explanations. Foolish, foolish girl. What could not be so easily tucked away in an unseen corner of herself were new fears. What Latika and Jinnah and Pinko and Constable Singh and everyone else in her small world believe that Mita is a fool. She interrogates her hope. You're going to find his killer. I'll do all I can. What then? Contact the authorities. What then? They will arrest him. What? The sound of three slow knocks on the door makes her heart leap. Adiba and Mita look at each other in horror. He springs from his crate with previously unseen dexterity, killing the light. The door opens and Adiba grabs the closest blunt object, an unwashed pan full of congealed grease. He lifts it, ready to strike whoever enters. The visitor, of course, is Sister Shanti. Nine. Will you hear my confession, Francis? I am not supposed to be writing this. The religious life doesn't lend itself to the drafting of long missives. You would not believe the relish some of my sisters have in turning me into the mother superior. I've had to hide the pages of the manuscript in dusty financial reports and train myself to wake up at midnight and sneak away to a gardener's shed on our grounds, pass my pages surreptitiously to a boy who works at the net cafe down the street to retype. I trust grace will extend during these lapses of obedience. The good news is I'm fully covenanted now and made my final profession not a month ago. It's settled. God wants me in and I want to be in, so I'm in. Still, this writing is taking a toll beyond the corporal penance assigned whenever I'm found out. Dwelling on this story is not an easy thing, for I know the pain it will bring all involved. It's contemplation of suffering, much like looking at Christ on the cross. But I know the suffering is not the end purpose. Love made the cross a salvation, not the torture, not the pain. I struggle through the day after a night of writing. The lack of sleep is one reason, but I find myself living the scenes I conjure here. Walking around Delhi, I feel like I see sister walking past. I hear Jinnah in the voice of my superior. I look in the mirror and see a glimpse of Mita. Tricks of the mind or religious revelation, I know not. I've tried to explain to my confessor, but writing this is proving a form of prayer. This is important because I struggle in prayer. The spoken kind, I mean. I rattle them off. Of course, that's how we show off our nunness to the world. For those who grew up in the church, this is a second nature. But for me, it's all too conscious. For me, prayer is not so much the speaking. It's more like waiting. Opening myself, is it? A small hole in my mind where images just plop down when the forced riling of words isn't enough. You have no idea how, when I am struggling with some task, 
some disturbing call that's been placed on me. If I open up like this, I can feel the spirit wash over me, allowing me to love as I could not on my own. Now, as this pain and heartache resurfaces, as I stir these people up from the emptiness of the blank page, I put them all before God again and remember. Love makes the story the salvation that it is, not the torture, not the pain. Oh dear, if you'll excuse me for a moment, this is proving too much. I must pause and I must pray. I'm back. Sister Shanti has just entered Ram's chole. She glares at Mita and Mita glowers back. What are you doing here? Sister Shanti finally asks in Hindi. Who are you? Mita spits back. The landlord. Sister Shanti chortles. That's what I look like. Mita looks to Adiba. He has lowered the pan and his face settles into its comfortable, dispassionate state. He sniffs twice, shrugs. Get out, sister says. I'm sure you looters have been waiting for your chance to swoop in and take what you can. Mita does not appreciate this. You accuse me? I have every right. We were engaged, you stupid old woman, and if you think... Sister slips her hand up to Mita's mouth to quiet her. Engaged? She exhales the word. Mita is disarmed. Were you with him? The night he expired? Mita struggles to nod. Then you're Mita. Another nod. Where is the light? Sister asks, running an urgent hand over the nearest wall. It's Adiba who pulls the cord. Sister slides her glasses down her nose and squints, taking in this girl in the new light. Her bony fingers delicately touch around Mita's bruised eye, sister's habit for seeking out injury. Only then does she take in the pleasant symmetry and proportion of Mita's face. Unexpectedly, the old nun smiles, her crow's feet catching small tears. Are you all right? That injury? An accident. Mita can't help but glance at Adiba. A fall, she says. How is it you know my name? A ticket, a railway ticket. I am called Sister Shanti. Shanti. Mita feels tenderness towards this odd old woman well up. She shifts the milk crate from near Adiba to Sister's feet. You may sit. Sister does, setting her suitcase down. Thank you, Sister says. The two pause taking stock of the situation, its improbability and consolation. Each feels their own measure of suspicion, though. Adiba is, not surprisingly, consumed scratching a mosquito bite. How did you find the ticket? Can I have it? Sister nods, unlatches her case, produces it. Mita looks the rectangle over in her hands. Its written contents are inscrutable, but magical all the same. We were leaving, she says, that very night, running away. From what? Mita is still enraptured by the creased paper in her hands. We were going to marry. Eloping. 
Meeta doesn't know the word. She whispers yes anyway. What was the problem? What it always is, Meeta says, eyes snapping to sisters. Caste, religion, money, a dismissive wave casts these social determinants away. Your parents didn't approve. Meeta snickers. Our parents didn't approve. Our? But Ram had none. Meeta gulps. Besides the mention of Ram's dead mother, the subject had never arisen. Sister stiffens. Meeta sidesteps the question. What was your relationship to him? I met him on the street, in my duties as a sister. I've known him since he was a child. His sister? Shanti cocks her head, confused. A Catholic sister, she says, signalling to her dress. From Mother Teresa's society. The missionaries of charity. Meeta looks to Adiba for help. These names are a meaningless litany. I'm a Christian, sister says. And Meeta finally understands, at least in part. This woman is some strange, shriveled religious creature, like the crones who live near temples or widows who beg at mosques. Meeta frowns. The only Christians she knows are Jinnah and Adiba. And the only thing she knows for sure about the faith is that its followers eat pork and beef. Extrapolating from these Christians, she holds the entire lot in low estimation. Christian, yes, she says. Sister Shanti rubs her temples and withdraws her rosary. Meeta thinks they are Muslim prayer beads, only confusing things further. Please forgive me, sister says. It has been a long day. I'm sure you're as saddened as I am by Ram's departure. Oh, much more sad, Meeta says, and watches sister's eyes flash. A realization dawns on Meeta. Before her sits a woman who knew Ram for so long could unlock his life unlike anyone else, would commiserate like no other, would want Meeta to succeed in her mission. Tell me about yourself, sister says, again a bit teary-eyed. Ram and I last spoke a few months ago. He didn't mention you. He also said he lived and worked in Gargoan. He told me the same, Meeta replies. We only knew each other for a few months. Sister expressed no disapproval. Where do you live? The old city. Are you from Delhi? No. Are you a student? No. Where do you come from? Meeta appears at a loss. I'm from a village in UP. Uttar Pradesh. Hmm. Sister reflects. Feudal place. Likely worked in fields. Low caste, surely. And you came to Delhi for work. What type? Meeta swallows, struggling for an answer. Dance. I'm a dancer. Adiba, who had all but disappeared, snickers. Meeta wonders how best to kill him. Sister demonstrates a new iciness. She clears her throat. I am rather adept at detecting when someone is lying to me. 
It comes from years of experience with young sisters who try to hide their mistakes. I do dance. What style? Where do you perform? Words escape Mita. And this lout? Who is he? A brother? A cousin brother? He's... he's... You stay near here? Mita is panicking. Not so far, over in Nikonot Place. Oh, Lord. Silence. Where? Sister asks. Don't tell me it's GB. Mita looks down. Her anger and shame are in stiff competition to express themselves. I know your type, Sister says darkly. You're a bowl of honey. You had Ram's whole mind and body tied up in knots. I've seen it before. Mita speaks very quietly. You don't know a thing. He came to me. And you invited him in. You spread your legs, making him waste his money. Dance, Mujira, I'm guessing. Ha! You're terrible. You should speak. Sister's whole person shrinks, as if the flame animating her has just been snuffed out. A moment, a new grimace, and she's back. What are you doing here, Mita? Go to the homes of all your boyfriends, eh? She looks hurt. I'm trying to find the truth. I'm trying to find who killed him, to take revenge. You sound like an actress delivering lines. Mita first takes this as a compliment. Once the insult dawns, What about you? Why do you have the right to be here? I suppose, sister sighs, like you, I'm looking for some explanation. I keep thinking about what I might have done to prevent it. Emotion finally cracks through sister's exterior, her shed tears seem a surprise to both of them. Mita lifts a mildly soiled shirt from the floor for sister to wipe her eyes. They look at each other, wondering what comes next. Adiba belches. You're doing the right thing, sister says, softening. The right thing, she repeats. She surveys the room, taking it in. I suppose you didn't upend all this. Mita shakes her head. There's not much here. I see two mats, sister says. Who lived with him? Mita shrugs. He never said. Sister's eyebrow peaks. Do you think his killer rooted through all this? Who else? The roommate, perhaps. Maybe he stole everything of value and got out when Ram didn't come home. Sister begins to poke about the room. Blood, sister says definitively, spread all over the floor. She kicks a propane tank, flips over some clothing, frowns at Adiba as his eyes follow her. Her fingers run over the rosary beads and her lips form words under her breath. She looks so very frail to Mita. You say you found nothing? Mita hesitates, then proffers the notebook. There was this. Sister takes it and flips through the pages. A calendar, she says, with many meetings scheduled. One even. She looks up in the air, counting days. 
for tomorrow afternoon by the look of things. Tourist hotel. What a stupid name. She remarks, in the Tibetan colony, 3 p.m., the bogan, it says beneath. Really? Sister highlights the entry. Where was this found? Hidden. Mita lifts the poster. Acha, what a thing. And these folded notes? I can't read. Of course you can't. Sister begins scanning them, three in total. Mita waits expectantly. Could these be for Arm? Or his roommate? They're love notes, sister says. Florid things and a bit dirty. His roommates then, Mita says grimly. Sister explores the room again and a glint catches her eye. It is a tea biscuit tin that looks utterly familiar. Could it be? She walks towards its place on the shelf and looks inside, turns it over. Her collection of trinkets falls into her hand. A plastic figurine of Rama, a polished stone, a chain of paper clips, a toy car. A number of other valueless, invaluable knick-knacks. What are those? Small gifts, she says, her voice shallow. Each given to Ram when he was little. By whom? Me. Sister holds up the can to peer inside. There's a photograph. Mita approaches to see. It has Ram and someone else, another young man. Their smiling faces fill half the frame, each one's arms around the other's shoulders. Mita looks closely and gasps. What, what do you see? He has a scar down his cheek. Part of his ear is missing too. So? Pinku, this young thug I talked to, he saw who was chasing Ram and me that night, who must have killed him. He described his scarring just so. Sister grimaces. The papers had none of that. It occurs to Mita. The man at the station said the killer had been stabbed in the leg. The blood spread all over. It's his. The killer's. Could it be? This one in the photo, the killer, could be his friend. Even his roommate. The composition book. The roommates. He came straight here from the railway station, looking for something, turning the room over. Ram was nervous when he arrived in my room that night. Mita tells sister, skittish, normally nothing would surprise him. I thought it was just nerves. He must have known he was being pursued. But why? It's as if sister has just recalled Mita's role in all of this. The honey bowl. Her flash of excitement is past. Her steeliness returns. Mita looks at her feet. I thought no one else in this world wanted to know what happened to Ram. I... I also know I cannot do this alone. Sister still frowns. But maybe the two of us? Sister looks to her suitcase as if it contains all her hopes and fears. She sighs. I think we should. Mita's heart swells and she tries to contain a smile. We'll need to talk to the landlord, sister says. Yes, the neighbours too. 
and the meeting tomorrow. Maybe our killer will appear if this is his notebook. Maybe this Mr. Bogan can tell us more. Sister gives an assenting bob. It's already late. After making inquiries, we'll part ways. We can meet again in the morning. Are you travelling? Mita gestures towards the case. No. Where will you stay? Sister shrugs. Here. Here? I was thinking I might. I have no money to waste on accommodation. But where do you live? In Delhi, at a home for poor disabled children. In Shah Jahanabad. That's not far. Sister considers her answer. While I look into what happened to Ram, I'm staying away from my home. It is Meeta's turn to cast a suspicious glare. Then, out of nowhere, a plan springs to mind fully formed. Despite Jinnah's permission to leave and not work for this entire week, Meeta knows it will be a hollow promise. So goes Meeta's resulting calculus. Jinnah equals Christian. Sister equals Christian. Jinnah plus sister plus Kota equals a brothel full of Christians. You can come with us, Meeta declares. Adiba's mother, my employer, is a Christian herself. Adiba has nearly fallen off his crate. Sister cocks her head, considers the offer. I accept, she says. Come, there's much to do. Ten. Walk with me down GB Road, will you, Pope? Over the din of honking horns, that truck's exhaust pipe spuming black, the chowk's bright signs, the chartwale's advertising parathas and sabzi wrapped in little newspaper packets, the clinking of utensils and pots drowning out conversation. I can see you're looking a bit confused, doubtful. You ask, isn't it unlikely these two meeting in such a way, joining causes? I answer, yes, but it happened, just so. Overcoming astronomical odds and crossing paths are as two wild atoms crashing about, happening to connect and bond. It is what it is. Seemingly impossible until you realise that's all life is. Chance encounters of unlikely attraction that shape everything. As for the decision to throw in together, let us look at the psychology involved. No, no, I'm no expert in the mind and its ways, but I have reflected long and hard on these events. Anyone can see this begins as a relationship of convenience and mutual purpose. The degree to which it is unlikely they would ever yoke themselves together is diminished by several mundane factors. They are grieving. The other is consolation. They are hopeless. The other is a hint of the impossible. They desire truth. The other travels the same path. And so you see, this most unlikely pair is rendered, well, likely. A likely pair. Let's continue our stroll down GB. I can see your eyes travelling over different wares for sale, 
trying to avoid looking at the women young and old as they watch you call out to you from barred windows above burlap sacks brim with color overflowing brilliant red peppers blindingly yellow marigolds the spice shop makes your eyes water makes a cough climb up your throat ah i see your eye captured by the frozen fruit vendors chopped melons i warn you your stomach will revolt by morning cholera in a cup they say will some chai do let us stop at this dhaba and drink up i need you alert our likely pair will arrive shortly i can tell you what's happened while we sip while adiba couldn't be bothered to leave ram's apartment sister and meeta canvassed the hallways they were on odd sight the neighbors old aunties young men from the countryside were unsure how to greet them sister did the asking age commanded respect they were quiet boys said one neighbor we never spoke both around the same age said another i had difficulty telling them apart been there since the new year said a third that's what i think but these people they come and go pace off said a fourth meter replied with an unkind gesture they ultimately found the landlord she was an older jane woman sister noticed the poster with the sex 24 ford makers gracing the wall she met our pair with immediate suspicion sister explained all ram was dead they were looking for the roommate to see if he could explain more and by the looks of things and of most concern to the landlady no additional rent would be forthcoming from the young tenants the landlady said she didn't know which one was which is the dead one with the scar or without without both sister and meter replied eh hey, doesn't matter they paid but spend most of their time elsewhere come and go mostly here to change clothes only up to something they tried to ask her further questions but she demurred answering with a raised hand nothing else i am knowing no trouble am i wanting she closed her door they reclaimed adiba and proceeded to gb packed tightly into a single auto rickshaw they did not speak for a while your tea is finished francis you may throw the cup on the ground worry not it will be cleared up by a sweepress by morning there is an order to things even when it appears there isn't what luck here is our trio rolling up couldn't have timed it better sister shanti is the first out of the auto and pays the way thank you and god bless you she says to the driver as she gets out meter wonders how his wild driving merits such a benediction gb is alive and doing monstrously well tonight devouring souls it has lured in and trapping them in its dark belly meeta breathes deeply once standing on the road whenever she is away from gb there is a keening feeling as if on unfaithful ground here all is level sister shanti watches all the activity the men walking hurriedly going up coming down the touts the music the orange lights that bathe it all on one side of the road is a wall that bounds the railway shunting yard cars are parked all along it and groups of young men congregate in circles under light poles tittering 
there are solitary men too. Those just off the trains or heading towards the trains, stopping off to try and fill the aggressive emptiness that gnaws them from within. Like eating days-old bread, these visits are utterly unsatisfying just to fill the space. Mita is taken by how sister seems to observe. It is as if she sees past the surface of things. She is distant, and Mita, tired as she is, is willing to indulge her. Where do we go? Sister finally says, snapping out of her reverie. Mita signals. Sister collects her case and steps up off the road and onto the raised cement walkway, past a sitting vendor's idols of Lakshmi and Ganesha. Pinku is there with two other young pimps. The bottle of Jalwa spiced country liquor they pass around is down to the dregs. Found your man yet? He asks, louder than necessary. Soon, Mita says. Pinku, meet Sister Shanti. Jinnah's new girl. Hoping to attract different customer demographic, is she? Unfortunately for you, Sister says, I'm taken. The three young men's mouths drop before they explode in drunken laughter. Pinku raises his bottle in salute. God bless you, Sister says, a smile at the corner of her mouth. Chalo, Mita, let's go up. Mita and Adiba take to the stairs slowly, tiredness weighing upon them. The warning, beware of pickpockets and pimps, greets Sister, and she sighs. She sets foot to stare, and suddenly the profound sadness is there again, rising with her. As foolish as it sounds, what she looked for on the road a moment ago was Ram. In so many of the young men's faces, in their effects, she saw hints of him. She indulged the strange hope that maybe one of them might actually be Ram, walk right up to her with a smile on his face, a treasure in his hand. The profound sadness gave way to another, that so many youths were on the cusp of being lost with no one to scoop them up and rescue them. Not enough sisters to go around. Not enough hope. She rises, one step, another, and another. She pauses, needing a rest. She's not eaten a thing since breakfast and is light-headed. Adiba, already up to the door, comes back to her level. He takes her other hand, helping her. Thank you, she whispers. Now at the threshold to number 201, a thought strikes sister. She enters hell by climbing rather than descending. In her many years of witnessing the infernal on the earth, she has not once entered a brothel. Yes, she has consoled a child whose mother was just murdered before her eyes by her drunken father. She has come upon a dead and abused infant on the edge of a dump, found by street children while picking through the garbage. She has been held at bay by police while their colleagues raped a young girl she tried to love, whom she hoped would become an MC herself. Hell upon hell upon hell. There is shouting from within, a woman's voice. Gina. Mita says the name like it's a curse. She eases the door in just as a man throws it open. He is like a beaten dog, longing for a look of kindness, 
but finding none from the three who stand before him. He sidles past. Jinna transfers the balance of her rant to Mita. Coming back so late, I didn't give you permission to... And then to Adiba. I had to kick out two perverts. And then sister. Who the hell are you? Sister, of tight lips and lidded eyes, steps in. My name is Sister Shanti. There's no need to yell. Jinna is reduced to her girlhood self. Her eyes dart between the three. Rifa Tananu, unoccupied, poke their heads out from down the hall. Uh, none? Here? Jinna's words leak out of her pursed lips. She signs across, a vestigial reflex. Adiba pushes his way between them all, grunting and locks the door to his room once inside. You've brought a nun? Jinnah asks. Mita nods, failing to suppress her glee. You are welcome, you are welcome, Jinnah says, forcing a smile. She offers a chair to sister and mutes the radio. In its place, they hear a customer making all manner of sounds. Adiba! 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 He opens the door. His full belly on display distracts sister from his frown. Free up Deepthi, would you please thank you very much? She is currently a... entertaining... Confusion. Adiba makes a throwing motion towards the quarter door. Jinnah nods enthusiastically, her eyes daggers. And so Adiba trudges down the hall and pulls aside a curtain. He works to eject the man despite his protestations. Sister's displeasure remains through it all. So, you are running this place, she finally says. Jinnah looks down in shame. You should stop. Sister gestures towards the illustration of Jesus framed on the wall. I see you invite Christ's presence here. Jinnah's eyes are still cast low. They remain so for the duration of the customer's removal. Mita is near bursting with pleasure. Can you bring the women out? Sister says. I would like to meet them. Girls! Jinnah calls. Anger is beginning to overtake her surprise. They come out, Deepti last, and stand beside Jinnah, unsure where their eyes should rest. The hot disapproval she received when sister learned of her occupation worries Mita. Her first doubts about bringing the nun here rise. I am Sister Shanti. She paces in front of the women, like a diminutive colonel inspecting her troops. I shall be staying with you for a brief time. I am grateful to this one, signalling to Mita, for inviting me here, and to this one, signalling to Jinna, for giving me the opportunity. Mita's mouth drops. These are not the words of an imperious commander. They are punctuated by tenderness. Sister approaches Rifat first and takes her chubby cheeks in her hands. Rifat is frightened. You are lovely, sister says. 
she brings Rifat's face low and kisses her forehead. Next is Anu. You are beautiful, sister says. She accepts sister's kiss. She steps up to Deepti, who strains against the touch. Sister forces nothing. There is no need for shame. I'm not ashamed, Deepti mutters. Sister smiles. Of course you aren't. She strokes Deepti's forearm and moves on to Jinnah. The old woman looks as if an executioner looms. You are my sister, you know. Adopted into the same family we two have been. Sister takes Jinnah in her arms, raises her up, kisses her cheeks in turn. The old woman braces against the table to keep herself from collapsing. I am very happy to meet you all, sister says. It's rare I'm out these days and rarely in new places. The room is silent, pregnant with the ineffable. Meeta, meanwhile, wonders whether sister has forgotten to come close and kiss her. A knock at the door, just before it swings open. Ramesh, a regular. All eyes shoot to Jinna. What do you think you're doing, Ramesh? Barging in without any politeness, like some randy street dog? Get out! Out! Ramesh, dumbfounded, then offended, slams the door, rattling its hinges. Jinna's phlegm-filled wheezing is the only audible sound. Adiba! Gina finally says, Stand outside the door. Tell other customers we are closing for the night. Sister's expression is inscrutable. Are you hungry? Gina asks sister quietly. You must be tired. I am both. I could make some dal, Rifat volunteers. Oh, I don't wish to be trouble, sister says. I saw a somewhat clean-looking restaurant on the way here. Let's have them bring us a meal and drinks and desserts, a real feast. I've not had restaurant food in some time. Gina's eyes widen as she counts the mounting expenses. I will pay, I will pay, sister assures Gina, wrapping an arm around her shoulders. Turn on the music, sister says, some good classical stuff. Mita comes close and hisses. I thought you said you had no money. I have funds, sister says with a grin. They were entrusted to me to spend on others. Realizing the withheld kiss was not a mistake, that sister was not some force to be marshaled by Mita is unsettling. While the others are finding their defenses breached, Mita's heart hardens towards this strange, otherworldly woman. This has been a Dispatch Publishing production of Little Flower. Written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara J. Nakui. Text copyright 2017 by Ted Oswald. Music by Kevin McLeod, used by permission. If you have enjoyed this production, please consider rating and reviewing this audiobook at audible.com and on goodreads.com.